Good evening, church. Good to see you this evening. Thank you for being here. As always, I, I want to tell you that I love you, and I want to tell you that I so appreciate you taking time out of the middle of your week to be with your brothers and sisters in Christ. I haven't gotten to be here uh, for the summer series very much this summer, so I am excited and thankful to be here. But I want to say on behalf of all of the speakers that we've been having and will continue to have through the summer series, I'm excited that you get to know my friends uh, I, I'm thankful that you get to know some of the guys that, that I am blessed to call friends and to spend time with. We have lunch together once a month, and, and I'm so thankful for these men and for the encouragement that they are to me. Our speaker tonight will introduce himself as Eli, I'm sure. I want to make sure. I mean, you can grade me on my pronunciation. Eliseo Enojos. Yeah? Okay, good. Uh, but, but Eli is a good friend and someone who loves the Lord and loves the church, and I am so excited to hear his encouraging word tonight. Eliseo has been married to his wife Blanca for 25 years. They have three adult children, Alejandro, Tabitha, and Celeste. He's been preaching for 21 years, currently preaching at the North Texas Church of Christ in Northlake. I didn't know this part, but after serving in the Navy for a little over four years and a border patrol agent for a year, he was working in the oil field and he knew that the Lord was calling him and his family to ministry. And we are so thankful that he's come to minister to us tonight. Come preach the word to us, brother. No, when, uh, when we walked in here, when we all sat down right here, uh, my two daughters are with me tonight, and a niece and a, and a nephew. Uh, we, uh, my wife looked over at me, and she says, I hope we didn't take anybody's chairs. <laughs> and I said, I, we're with the Wednesday night crowd, honey. I don't think we took anybody's chairs, uh, right? Uh, and that kind of, she didn't plan it this way, but it kind of goes into what I want to talk to you guys about tonight just a little bit, because talking about assigned chairs and assigned pews and all that kind of stuff, uh, Traditions have a way of getting a hold of us sometimes. And I don't want you to, to hear me something that I'm not saying uh, tonight. I don't want to, I, I, by no means do I ever want to say that traditions are bad or evil or sinful. But sometimes in church life, sometimes in our Christian walk, traditions have a way of holding us back uh, in, from growing, from maturing, from being what God wants us to be. Uh, and so I think in our life, uh, it, 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 it just, it's encouraging. It, it, I want to encourage you to take a look at your traditions, to take a look at the things that you have established, the things that you were, you, you're used to, and see if that's truly what God wants you to be. If so that, if, see if that's truly where God wants you to be, all right? So if you want to open your Bibles, you can open your Bibles with you. I always encourage you to do that. Uh, but we're going to have a bunch of scriptures up here uh, on the screens. But if you want to open your Bibles, like I said, I always want to encourage you to do that. We're going to look at a particular section of scripture tonight that kind of deals with this idea of traditions. Right? Now, I want us to take a look at this next slide uh, before uh, we move on. Because... Uh, I don't know if you guys have done m many interactive uh, sermons, but we're going to start doing that tonight. We're going to be a little interactive today. So I want you to look at these dots that I have up on the screen here. Obviously, one of them is red. One of them is blue, right? And I want you to look at them and look at them closely. And I want you to make a decision. Which one of these is bigger? 
Now, don't say anything yet. I'm going to give you a few seconds to look at them. Use whatever measuring. Maybe you're really good with your eyes, or you can put your hand up there and try and figure it out, you know. And which one of these is bigger? Now, I know what you might be thinking, that they're the same, but they're not. I promise you they're not. One of these dots is bigger than the other one. What I need you to tell me tonight is which one is bigger than the other one. Which one do you think is bigger than the other one? So hopefully, now that I've been talking for a few seconds, you've had a chance to look at them and had a chance to decide which one is bigger. So, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand, okay? I promise you, one of these is bigger. So some of you are going to be wrong and some of you are going to be right, okay? So, how many of you think that the red dot is bigger? Okay, put your hand on your hand. And so I'm guessing that the rest of you think that the blue dot is bigger, right? Am I right? Okay, all those that, that think the blue dot is bigger, go ahead and raise your hand. Man, that's, that's pretty good, about half and half of you. That's pretty good. So what just happened is, I, Wes, I'm sorry, but what just happened is uh, we split this congregation down the middle. We already started with the split, so that's not a very good start for me, right? Now, before I said anything about these circles, before I said anything about these dots, what was your first instinct? Y'all can tell me. What was your first instinct? That they're the same, right? Well, you know why that was your first instinct? Because they are. <laughs> they are exactly the same. They are exactly, I, I promise you, I did this on PowerPoint, and I measured, you know, when you do that little circle thing, and it comes out, and it measures exactly, I promise you, I measured them, and they're exactly the same. Now, right now, some of you are thinking, no way, I know that the red one is bigger, right? Because I know, I see it, and I'm looking at it, and I'm measuring it, and I know that the blue one is bigger. I know some of you are still thinking that way, and no matter how many times I tell you, they are not. They are exactly the same. The only difference between these two is the colors, but the width, the height, everything is the same. And I know that you're going to leave here tonight still thinking that one of them is bigger. But they're not. They're exactly the same size. And yet, I got just about every one of you to say that they're not. So what do you learn? What do we learn? Well, we learn that every one of you can be manipulated. That you can be manipulated to say something that goes against your natural instinct. Just imagine for a second. Just, just go with me on this mental exercise, this mental journey. Just imagine for a minute that your whole life you have been taught that the blue circle is bigger. That's what you've heard your entire life. That every time you see a blue and a red circle together, the blue circle is bigger. Just imagine that that's something that you have been taught your entire life. And someone has been hammering that into your, into your life and into your mind and into your brain. And everywhere that you go, where you go to church, where you go to school, where you go, where you go to work, everybody has told you that that blue dot is bigger. Just imagine that that's happened in your life. I want you to know that every time you're told a lie, there's a little part of you 
There's a little part of us that wants to believe that lie if it, it, just because it makes a little bit sense to us. And if you're told that lie enough, eventually you're going to be convinced that that lie is truth. And if you're told the lie enough times, not only are you going to become, not only are you going to start believing it's true, but it's going to become your truth. And when it becomes your truth, it becomes a part of your reality. And if enough people are taught that lie, if enough people are taught that reality, and that reality becomes enough, becomes a part of enough people's reality, then that blue circle becomes the dominating circle in the world. Well, now it becomes a part of the culture. Because enough people have been told a lie and enough people believe it. Well, now that it's part of the culture, that culture passes on that misinformation to the next generation. And then that lie becomes tradition. It is so important, church. It is so important that we always remember that just because something is tradition or something we have become accustomed to something... It doesn't necessarily make it true. This is why when someone comes along who disrupts our traditions, who disrupts what we think is true, who disrupts what I have been taught to be true, this is why we see sometimes, we hope that this isn't happening anymore, but it still happens in a lot of pew. That person that that pew belongs to come and just sits there and just looks at them and just stands there. Doesn't say anything, but they just expect them to move because that is my pew. See, we laugh about pews, but what if we're not talking, what if what we're talking about is not a pew? What if what we're talking about is a certain version of the Bible? What if what we're talking about is a certain song that we sing or that we're not allowed to sing? What if what we're talking about is a pulpit? What if what we're talking about takes on a little bit of more of a serious note and it's the Lord's Supper or how we do the Lord's Supper? What if what we're talking about turns a little bit more serious? Well, then that circle that has been a part of our lives for so long, that is our reality, and somebody comes and wants to take that circle away from us, how are we going to react? Right? We're going to fight back because that's my truth. And my truth, I have been taught it my whole life, and I want to hold on to it, and I will hold on to it for dear life because it's my truth. Because how can everybody that has taught me this have been wrong all those years. Because my tradition is my tradition, and it's true. And so when somebody comes and disrupts our traditions, we tend to react. Or maybe a little bit of overreact. And we react defensively. We react angrily. And at times, we react even violently. So it's no wonder that when Jesus showed up in the world, people wanted to kill him. 
It's no wonder that when Jesus showed up in the world and he started disrupting things that the religious authorities believed to be true, that they reacted violently toward him. When Jesus shows up in the world, he is disrupting all kinds of religious traditions. He is doing things and saying things that go against everything that the Pharisees especially that they believed to be true, that they know to be true, and that they taught as truth to the people that followed them. And so everybody believed, I mean, if these guys were teaching lies or traditions as truth, God wouldn't let them be teachers, would he? Would he? And yet, they were. And yet they taught all of these things as if they were the very word of God. And so people followed them. And because Jesus came, I came disrupting those truths, especially when it came to the Sabbath and the traditions of the Sabbath and what you're supposed to do and what you're not supposed to do on the Sabbath. And when Jesus came and disrupted that, well, of course they were going to react. Of course they were going to overreact. And they overreacted violently more than once. They tried to crowd Jesus and they tried to trap him and And we know the stories, right? I'm talking to the Wednesday night crowd. Of course we know the stories. We know how they reacted. I want you to read with me one of those occasions in Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. On a Sabbath, as he was going through the grain fields, we're talking about Jesus. First of all, he shouldn't have been out walking anyway because nobody's supposed to work on the Sabbath, right? He should have been in a house somewhere just waiting for the Sabbath to go, to to, to pass. So he's already making a mistake by going and walking around on the Sabbath. That's from the Pharisee's point of view. He shouldn't have been outside doing anything. But on a Sabbath, as he was going through the grain fields, his disciples were pulling and eating heads of wheat, rubbing them with their hands. Some Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? I I don't know, sometimes when people attack others, even when Christians attack each other, and we start accusing and we start throwing accusations at one another, do we not realize that we're accusing other people of exactly the same thing that we're doing? See, that's what the Pharisees were doing. They're accusing Jesus of doing something that he's not supposed to. He's not supposed to be out in the fields. Well, what are the Pharisees doing out in the fields? Right? See, I I don't think we we realize that sometimes. Sometimes when we point the finger at somebody else, there's three of them pointing right back at us. Remember that. Right? As, As we interact with one another. Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did? When he and those with him were hungry, how he entered God's house and ate the sacred bread and gave to those with him, which was only lawful for the priests to eat, he continued, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Can we just stop for a moment? Can you pray with me, please? Let's pray. Father, as we read your word, we, we pray that you open our hearts. We pray, Father, that your spirit just connects us more to you. We thank you because your spirit makes this word alive, Father, and the lessons that you have for us, how you want us to live and how you want us to grow and how you want us to mature, Father, because of it is clear to us. Open our hearts 
and open our spiritual eyes as we read and study together in Jesus' name. Amen. See, the disciples, actually, they really didn't do anything wrong. They really didn't. They didn't break any law. Actually, in Deuteronomy chapter 23 and 25, we find the law that allowed them to do what they were doing. See, so they weren't breaking any law. They weren't doing anything. Deuteronomy 23, 25 says, when you come into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads with handing grain. The disciples didn't use a sickle. They didn't chop any grain down. They didn't, no, all they were doing was grabbing the heads of grain and having a snack. That's what they were doing. What they weren't allowed to do, as per the law, was harvest the grain on the Sabbath. Well, they weren't harvesting. They were just snacking. But the Pharisees, they were the kings of technicalities. And in their mind, they were absolutely breaking the law. Not only were they breaking one law, but they were breaking about three or four of them. And they were absolutely not going to have it. Because the Pharisees, the, the, they believed that the disciples were not only harvesting the grain, but they were winnowing the grain. As they were rubbing it between their hands to kind of get rid of the chaff and get rid of all the trash and stuff. They were winnowing the grain. And these two things, winnowing and harvesting, they could never be done on the Sabbath. And so as soon as they saw something happen that was even close to breaking a law, I mean, they swooped in and they said, you absolutely cannot do that. See, you claim to be the son of God and your disciples are breaking all kinds of rules and they're breaking all kinds of traditions and they're doing stuff that they're not supposed to. You claim to be a part of the church and you're singing those unholy songs and you came to be a part of the church and you, you don't even meet at 10 o'clock in the morning, you meet at 930. What kind of thing is that? You see, the things sometimes that we argue about are not really laws and rules. It's more like things that we're used to. The disciples were not breaking any rules. They weren't breaking any laws. But the Pharisees had taken this idea of harvesting and threshing and winnowing a law, and they turned it into, you can't even touch the grain. You can't even get close to it. And as a response to this accusation, I love Jesus' answer. Jesus reminds them of something that happened a few centuries before. He reminds them of something that David did. Now, David really did break some laws. Okay? He reminds them of an event that is told to us in 1 Samuel chapter 21. And I want to read this with you. Okay? Now, David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest... And Ahimelech was afraid when he met David and said to him, Why are you alone? And so no one is with you. So David said to Ahimelech, The priest, the king, has ordered me on some business and said to me, Do not let anyone know anything about the business on which I send you or what I have commanded you. And I have directed my young men to such and such a place. Now therefore, that you have, now therefore, what you have on hand, what have you on hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand or whatever can be found. And the priest answered and David, uh, David and said, there is no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have at least kept themselves from women, then David answered the priest and said to him, truly women have been kept from us about three days since I came out and the vessels of the young men are holy and the bread is in effect common, even though it was consecrated on this in the vessel of this day. 
So this priest gave him holy bread, for there was no bread there but the show bread, which had been taken from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place on the day when it was taken away. So I don't want to chase this rabbit down the, down the hole too much, but this bread that they keep talking about is a bread that was not to be touched by anyone except the priest. This was a holy bread, and there was laws in place prescribed by God himself. No one is to touch this bread. There are certain things that you need to do and not do with this bread. Well, David broke every one of the rules. Everything that you're not supposed to do with that bread, David did it. When the Pharisees demand an explanation from Jesus for the law that he supposedly broke, they are indignant at what is happening and what they're witnessing, and they just can't believe that Jesus is allowing the disciples to break all kinds of rules. They're, they are Jews. They're supposed to know better, and yet, and yet to the Pharisees, they didn't. Now, we look at the idea of harvesting grain and bread and all of this, and some of us might be a little confused and thinking, well, what was the big deal? Because we can look back, right, and it's not a big deal to harvest grain. We know that they weren't breaking any rules. David, yeah, but that was God and dealing with him, and he, you know, that's, that, that's God's thing, and we're, gonna, we're not going to jump into there and make a judgment. But what were the disciples doing? They weren't doing anything wrong, so what was the big deal? I want to tell you that this thing that the Pharisees were dealing with to them was a life and death issue. And so they demand an explanation from Jesus. And Jesus responds to them, and I love Jesus' response. He says to them, have you not read? Now, I mean, he's asking the Pharisees, if there was somebody in Jesus' immediate world that had not read, it would have been everybody else. But he's asking the few people that would have read. Of course they've read. They knew exactly what Jesus was talking about when he says, remember when David did what he did? And yet God, God didn't come down from heaven and smite David right then and there when David broke all of those rules. So why are you, why are you so adamant about these guys just eating a few grains, a few pieces of grain. Why? And of course, the Pharisees, they don't want to remember about David. They don't want to deal with David. No, no, they want to deal with the disciples and what's going on right in front of them, right? Because if they have to deal with David, then they'll have to deal with all kinds of theological questions and all kinds of things with God that they really don't want to deal with. Now, we don't do that nowadays, do we? We don't kind of ignore stuff that we don't want to deal with and go to the easier stuff to deal with. We don't do that at all in the church today. We don't turn away from the uncomfortable. David ate holy bread. Bread that was not supposed to be eaten. Not only did David eat it, but he shared it. And David suffered no consequence for breaking that law. Why not? Why did God overlook what David did? And why does he not, why, why do the Pharisees not overlook what the disciples are doing? You know, that's a question that I still have as I'm, I'm looking at this and I'm looking at what the disciples did. And I got to tell you, if I'm a Pharisee, I'm looking at that and I'm, and, and I'm wondering, 
Why didn't God do anything about David? I know why. Because I wasn't there. Because if I would have been there, I got to tell you, I would have given David the business. Because he was breaking the law. Maybe that's why God put me in this place at this time, because I, I need to make sure that everything is done right where I am. Maybe that's the place where the Pharisees are. Maybe that's why they ignore everything else and they say, well, this is the place where God has put me. And they, I got to tell you, the Pharisees, they get a bad rap sometimes, but they came. They had good intentions in their heart because they wanted to keep the law of God pure. They wanted to return the people to keep worshiping God. And they wanted to keep the purity of what God had given them. Now, they went a little overboard, obviously, but that's what they wanted to do. So why did God not do anything about David? And why do the Pharisees want to do something about a few heads of grain? Because, church, I think that God with all the prescriptions and all the laws and all the rules that we see in the Old Testament and in the law of Moses, with all the rituals, with all the sacrifices, is trying to teach us something. Just like Jesus is trying to teach the Pharisees something. Because I think something that the Pharisees have missed completely is that people are more important than rituals. Our relationships are more important than how many songs we sing or in what order we do them in or what time we meet or what our buildings look like. What we do with one another and how we encourage one another and how we lift each other up and how we hold each other accountable, all of those things are so much more important than the rituals and the ceremonies. And that's what God has been trying to teach us. For millennia, that's what, God has, that's what Jesus was trying to teach the, the Pharisees. But they didn't see it. People are more important than rituals. As a matter of fact, that's what God has been trying to teach us for a long time. Look with me, just a couple of scriptures with me in Hosea chapter 6. and verse 6, he says, God says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Psalm chapter 51 and verse 17 says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. Look, it doesn't give us a list of animals. It doesn't give us a list of crops. The psalmist doesn't give a list of ceremonies. He doesn't. He says the sacrifices that God, of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Those things, oh God, you will not despise. Laws and rituals are important. Church, like I said, I don't want you to hear me saying something that I am not saying. I am not saying that rituals, that traditions, that ceremonies are not important. I am not saying that. What I am saying is that when they lose their meaning and we keep doing them without heart, they mean nothing. Laws and rituals are important when they don't lose their meaning, when they st don't stop us from maintaining and deepening our relationships. This is what Jesus is telling the Pharisees. He's telling them, you guys are worried about your rituals, you guys are worried about your traditions and your laws, your laws, by the way, that you came up with yourself. Not that I gave you, or not that my father gave you, but these ideas that you came up with yourself. 
And you're worried about that. And you're worrying about who goes to the temple and who doesn't. And you're worried about who wears what. And you're worried about who does what. And you're worried about keeping the Sabbath holy. And you're worried about all of these things. And you have hungry and desperate people around you. And you're doing nothing. Jesus tells them, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Not you. I want you to let the heaviness of those words just sit on your mind for a second. I want you to let what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees sit on your heart for just a second. Because Jesus says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. The Pharisees thought that they were the lords of the Sabbath. But Jesus corrects them. And he says to them, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. He says, not you. You receive the Sabbath as a gift, as a remembrance. He says, I am the one who created it and gave it to you. If anyone should be offended about what's going on in the Sabbath, he says, it should be me, not you. But being offended for other people, that's kind of a thing in America now, isn't it? Well, the Pharisees were doing a pretty good job back then, too. They were offended for God. They were offended for Jesus. The Sabbath was not meant to give them burdens and detailed rules to follow. The Sabbath was created for the Israelites, for the people of God to be still, to talk about God, to remember, to reconnect with each other, to reconnect with God, to reconnect with who they were. That's what the Sabbath was meant to do. The Sabbath was meant to be a day of rest, it was, to be, it was meant to be a day of reconnection with family, of reconnection with God, of worshipful attitudes, of reviving. That's a, there's, a, there's a word that we don't use anymore, right? Revival? Well, God meant the Sabbath to be a day of revival, spiritually and physically. That's what God meant the Sabbath to be, to help them connect with each other and with their creator. And what did the Pharisees do? They turned it into an opportunity to remind everybody of how much holier they were than everybody else. There's a lot in what Jesus said there for us. And I think at this point, we, we, we understand, we get the point, right, of what Jesus was talking about. When Wes called me a few months ago and said, hey, we're doing the Summer Youth Series. And uh, said, we'd like you to be one of the speakers. And, he's, and I said, okay, well, what do you want me to talk about? He says, whatever you want, as long as it's encouraging. And I said, are you sure? He said, yeah, it's, it's, that's our theme. And up to this point, church, I know this lesson doesn't sound very encouraging. It sounds like I'm indicting the church on the things that we're doing wrong and we're doing right and all that. That's not what I'm doing. I'm telling you all of these things because I'm going to be honest with you for a minute, okay? I, um, I am encouraged because... The church that all 
and we don't hear these terms anymore, an ultra-conservative church. And I know some of you sitting here this evening know exactly what I mean when I say ultra-conservative church. The church that I grew up in, uh, we had a building and we had an auditorium, and that's it. We didn't have Bible classes because the Bible doesn't say to have Bible classes, so we're not going to have Bible classes. And you better not be chewing gum or drinking water in the auditorium because don't you have homes to go home to eat? I am encouraged, church, because I think finally, finally we're moving away from being Pharisees. I think finally the church is letting go of our pharisaical attitudes and law-keeping that we, are, we were used to be so adamant about. It is encouraging to me that in our brotherhood, we are finally leaving that rigid law-keeping attitude behind. It is encouraging that the pharisaic attitudes that once ruled our brotherhood are finally, finally starting to disappear. Finally, we're at a point, church, that instead of asking why are you dressed like that? Instead of asking that question, we're starting to ask the question, how can I serve you? And how can I help you? And how can I encourage you? And how can I lift you up? How can I give of myself to you? And it's so encouraging to know that finally we're, our, we're asking different questions. Instead of asking things like, we want you to join our church and not the church down the road. Instead of asking those questions, we ask questions like, I want to introduce you into Jesus. Do you know him? Do you know Jesus? Do you have a relationship with Jesus? We're finally to rise above the need to have more numbers in our congregations and the need to spread Jesus to those people who need him. It is so encouraging to me that, we are that we're not in the battle for numbers anymore. No, we're in the battle to get Jesus into people's lives. I think that that's where we need to be. And I am encouraged because we are not in that pharisaical place where we're looking at see who is picking the heads of the grain. No, instead, I think we're in the place where, hey, you guys are picking heads of grain. You're hungry. We're coming to my house. I'm going to feed you. I'm so encouraged because we're finally in that place. It used to be that we looked at these circles and we would form red factions and blue factions. It used to be that what we would do in the church is we would debate the positions and the size and the color, well, that's not really red. That's kind of a maroon color. Well, no, no, that's, I don't think that, that's not exactly blue. It used to be that we would form groups and we would form a committee to decide on which, on which circle was bigger. And if you were a red, we would call you old-fashioned and bigoted. And if you were a blue, then we would minimize you and ridicule you. I am encouraged because at last we are heeding Jesus' word that says, quit looking at the circles and instead look at the needs in each other's lives. And instead, lift each other up. Instead, live for each other. Instead, 
love one another because neither one of us, none of us are here to be blue or to be red or to learn how to be blue or to learn how to be red. No, we are here to learn to learn to serve and to follow Jesus. That is our only goal. I love what Wes says in his podcast all the time. He says, to love, to learn to love like Jesus. That is our goal. And I am encouraged because finally as a brotherhood, as a church, we are finally asking the question, Holy Spirit, teach us to learn to love like Jesus. Church, our traditions are good. They are. But only when they remind us that we are supposed to be imitators and followers of our Savior. Our traditions are good when they remind us of who we are supposed to be. You see, we gather Not because we have to. We gather because we get to. We sing not because it's the right songs or the the wrong songs. We sing because we are grateful to God for saving us through Jesus Christ. And we pray because why not? Let's talk to our Father. Any opportunity that we get, any chance that that we have to, why not talk to Him? See, Jesus sacrificed everything for us. Everything. He gave up heaven. He gave up his life. He gave up his blood. He gave everything for us. Because he came. Not to replace one set of rules with another set of rules. No. Church, he came to set us free. He came to set us free from sin. He came to set us free from guilt. He came to set us free from shame. And yes, even asked. Jesus is the only one is the only one who can do that. Will you pray with me, please? Father, thank you. Thank you for loving us. Help us to see one another like you see us. Help us to see the world like you see the world. Help us to be like you. Father, because we come to you confessing that we fall short. Because we don't know. We don't know how to love like you, Father. And so we ask you to fill us with your spirit and to teach us. In Jesus' name, amen.